Welcome to episode 493 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're going to express views here that don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, family, even our pets. And for the first time uh, in 493 episodes, we're going to have a sponsor. So stick around for the end when our sponsor will be revealed. First, though, we've got the news roundup with Jim Dempsey, who teaches policy at Stanford and law at Berkeley. We've got Michael Ellis, formerly of the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, now a visiting fellow at Heritage. Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law and policy at Georgetown. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for the day. Let's start because it's irresistible. I just I just love this with the following quote from the Babylon Bee. After decades of nothing but white Nazis, I finally see a strong, confident black female wearing a swastika. Thanks, Google. Mark, Jim, what is the Babylon Bee talking about? Well, I'm not going to say much about it the actual problem because it's pretty obvious. Google arranged for its Gemini operation to overcorrect on issues of race and gender so that many questions that would be asked, like show me a picture of George Washington, wound up showing something that was not George Washington, or pictures of the astronauts who landed on the moon were not pictures of the astronauts who landed on the moon, but were corrected to show appropriate diversity of gender and race. Mark, in this case, inappropriate diversity of yeah, right, yeah inappropriate. inappropriate. There we go. Which Google admitted. They said, in fact, that's right. Some sets should not have been diverse. The pictures of the astronauts who walked on the moon should not have been diverse. Yeah, and, but look, Google got it wrong on so many different levels. But the real question for me is, what kind of pressure must Google staff be under to let this thing get out with such obvious flaws? I mean, you all remember the Microsoft releasing Tay back in 2016. Remember that? Mm-hmm. The online word will turn out to be racist in a matter of hours. I thought they learned something. And, you know, they keep telling us how careful and responsible and thoughtful they are with all their precautions. And they, they use prompt engineering and fine tuning and reinforcement learning with human feedback to impose guidelines. And I know you can strip that stuff out, but this wasn't a case of manipulating the system to break the guidelines. The questions were pretty obvious ones, and they just got it wrong. So even the most cursory review should have shown us those problems. So if they got this wrong, what else are they getting wrong? And what are we to think about their promises of engineering safety into their systems? Yeah, my guess is that they didn't get it wrong. This is an example of when they get it right, this is what happens. I don't know, Jim. Well, you know, you can see this as a story about wokeism run amok. But I think you can also see it, and I think Mark is suggesting that it's also a story about tech hubris run amok. The people designing these systems think that they are smarter than the users, and they think that Mm -hmm. if they just build in enough rules and guardrails and some of them expressing the values of the developers, but even beyond this, the developers of this technology think that they can control it and control how it is used. And the kinds of things Mm -hmm. that surfaced with black popes and black Nazis and some of these other images that were generated, these are just the ones that, um, not even really malicious, people just having fun, were able to put out there in the public. People tweeted these images and so on. What I worry about is 
what are the kinds of exploits and attacks and misuses that the bad guys are not tweeting about, but they're stockpiling and sitting on and using. Again, I have thought for over a year now since ChatGPT came out that a lot of people were rushing too quickly to embrace AI. And in the process, yeah. they were ingesting a set of vulnerabilities that are quite profound. These systems are not controlled by these so-called guardrails. And right. people having right. fun, but also some very malicious users are gonna find ways to circumvent these guardrails and to produce results that look either stupid or that look dangerous. So, well, there's actually an optimistic scenario. Maybe, maybe the market will correct this. You know, companies are already talking less and less about AI in their discussions with stock analysts. They're looking past the hype to see if these things can actually provide any value added. But now, if they see mistakes like this, they're going to become convinced that the first version of these things are going to be full of mistakes. They're going to wait for the second or third, and the whole process of AI adoption will slow to a crawl. That's actually a hopeful Maybe, scenario. Mark, It'll drive the companies to doing a better again, job. This on was it. supposed to be the better version. This was supposed to yeah. be the humans have intervened, humans have imposed the guardrails, and in fact, those guardrails turned out in this case to be ridiculous. But in other cases, I think those guardrails have been shown to be ineffective, including against malicious attackers. I think that's right. So I think. It, it's worth talking a little bit about how they implemented the guardrails. There is an, an insight here as Google tries desperately to explain how it screwed up here. It said, oh, well, we put in our own prompts to complement and supplement right. what you actually asked for. So right. when you say, I want an astronaut, we just said, oh, make sure you prompt for an astronaut who's indigenous. And you didn't ask for it, but we decided in our arrogance that that's what you that's need. That's the hubris part. That's the hubris part. Well, that, but that's, that's how guardrails work. That's the, we're smarter yeah. than you are part. Exactly. Right. But Mr. Stewart, Jim, that's how guardrails work. Right. But obviously that tells us that the idea of putting guardrails in is dumb from the beginning. Bone Maybe stupid. So. Maybe so. But it, it, it's pretty clear that unless they do a better job on this stuff, I don't think adoption will go forward the way everyone has been hoping over the last year. I think it'll slow to a crawl. Yeah, I frankly think the effort to get diversity into images has been pounded into these folks by the usual woke suspects. And what they're pursuing is just dumb. Who cares? Yeah, but I, I don't think we want to focus on the diversity issue. I mean, the real issue is adequate safety controls. What else is hidden in there that's not being controlled properly if they let this thing out with such inadequate controls on it? Well, it is fair enough to say, I mean, I think they're pursuing a stupid goal and they're using a stupid means. You're suggesting that there are a bunch of other stupid means that people that are going to fail equally badly. Even for otherwise yep. legitimate goals. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Okay, well, it was a lot of fun. And this is the first time I think that I've actually quoted the Babylon Bee on the podcast, but its spirit has animated the podcast for at least 100 episodes. All right. The idea that there should be guardrails here also showed up in an open letter saying we need to do something about deep fakes yeah. and we want regulations to force us to have guardrails. And they were pretty clear about what government should do. What do you think of that letter and the proposals that are being made? Well, they've got a real problem. I mean, they're, they're worried about these non-consensual or grossly misleading AI 
generated images and voices. Uh, the bad news is that unless I've got a very wide definition of AI, the whole approach is limited to deep fakes constructed with, with AI as opposed to the stuff that was constructed with earlier technology. But they got joined by, you know, Yashua Bengio, the a machine learning pioneer. And he, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this stuff. And they want to go beyond just labeling or watermarking. And I think that's because they're worried about the non-consensual and potentially fraudulent nature of this stuff. One thing that, that is, a, is a good idea that they're suggesting is full criminalization of deep fake child pornography, which means even when the images are synthetic and no real children are involved, and this would make some sense to me, but how they get around that Supreme Court decision in 2002, the Ashcroft decision, I, I don't know. That's the decision that said that artificially generated images of child porn that did not depict a real child were protected speech. It's still a good idea, and I think... Yeah, it protected speech in a very limited way. You, you would have to show that it was obscene as opposed to just saying, that's a kid having sex, that's illegal. Right, exactly. And, and then they have criminal penalties if you knowingly create or facilitate the spread of harmful deep fakes, and they want the software developers to take steps to prevent their audio and visual products from cr creating these harmful deep fakes. Now, look, this is not a legal document, and no one knows what harmful deep fakes would be, legally speaking. But the deeper issue is whether it's at all possible to train an AI not to be used to show harmful output. Yeah. I mean, without crippling its capacity. I mean, how do you know if you're a developer where the, uh, an AI system that generates a sound like grandma was a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's being used to commit fraud. Maybe it's being used to um, use grandma and it's kind of fun. Well, I guess if Google's doing it, then the fraudulent deepfake of grandma will be an indigenous uh, <laughs> grandma. Right? So, so, so you'll, you'll, you'll know that way, right? And, and then, and then, and then <laughs> black, black female Nazi grandma, and then you'll know. It's okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But look, I mean, the, the general point is that the harm is in the use of the image, not its creation. I know tech companies have come a long way. They're trying to get technology to do normative work. But this one just seems impossible. I mean, non-consensual or grossly misleading images depend on the context of use, not the technical characteristics of image generation. So I think it's an impossible task. I'm going to offer that as a kind of rough guide. When somebody tells you we need to make sure that AI can't do this, that people cannot use AI for bad purposes. One of the questions is going to be, really, are you sure you can do that? And will the effort to do that make the, the model useless or otherwise uh, close to useless? And we've slid almost imperceptibly into the presumption that it is the responsibility of the AI company to make sure their customers behave themselves. Yeah, and that's clearly one of the accountability problems in producing these these systems. I mean, you don't know how it's going to be used. So how do you produce it in a way that you predict is going to be safe for all uses? It's, it's just an impossible task. Yeah. Okay. Let's move over to the State Department and the uh, House Small Business Committee. There has been a fight there that has been going on for quite a while over allegations that the State Department has been funding censorship operations, laundering censorship through a bunch of NGOs. Michael, what's the latest development in this? Well, as you noted, Jim Jordan's weaponization subcommittee is only one of two committees, it turns out, investigating online censorship. And 
the small business committee haven't been getting as much attention, but they've been quietly looking into the State Department's financial support for nonprofit groups that the pressure online platforms to censor. On on the logic, I, I think that many of the uh, affected speakers or media outlets are themselves small businesses. And it, it seems that after after much delay, the State Department eventually turned over a list of grant recipients that have received government money to fight misinformation or disinformation online, allegedly. But the State Department refused to disclose the subcontractors, the actual organizations doing the work who eventually received the money, as well as some sort of internal blacklist document the State Department's keeping. Now they're refusing to produce additional documents on the grounds that the committee publicly released one previously that State had marked sensitive but unclassified State Department jargon that is supposed to mean a document is protected from disclosure under FOIA or the Privacy Act, but State didn't really explain why that would be for a list of grant recipients. And the test, I think, is going to be whether the House is willing to start issuing subpoenas to back up its letters. I'm puzzled because you can make a reasonable case to say if it's classified, the House shouldn't be, you know, Congress shouldn't be releasing it. Although if it's classified at a very low level, you might question that. But this is sensitive, but unclassified. So what they're saying is we don't want to release it. And we think you should think hard before you release it. But the idea that they're not producing stuff because they said this is sensitive and it would embarrass us if you released it strikes me as no defense at all. Yeah. I mean, this this is a, a typical executive branch tactic, which is to fight over the process and try to drag things out as long as possible in the hopes that Congress gets distracted by something else and goes away. Yeah, They might be successful here if the Small Business Committee isn't willing to get out its subpoena cannon and fire off a few. One of the things that, and this may be the list that was so exercised, the State Department, it was a list of media outlets that were considered particularly bad and which apparently some of these NGOs have actually been pressuring advertisers not to allow their advertisements to appear on, and pretty successfully. I was struck by it because, uh, Michael, we have written for at least one and probably three or four of the 10 items that are listed as the most horrible uh, media outlets in America. I think we should take that as a compliment. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Maybe that's how they got on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. But yeah, you know, more 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 to see here. And you know, again, the, the Congress is becoming increasingly uh, increasingly willing to use hardball tactics and across both parties, both Democrats and Republicans both when it comes to obtaining information from the executive branch and obtaining information from private parties. So, it'll be interesting to see how that trend continues here. Okay, let's go back to deep fakes for a minute. Mark, the other deep fake news came out of the Munich Security Conference where a bunch of tech companies and a few governments got together to say, we're going to do something about AI generated election deep fakes. Although what they're going to do was a little less than clear. Yeah, I mean, the companies were some of the biggies Adobe, Amazon, Google, IBM, Meta, Microsoft, OpenAI, TikTok. Twitter joined later. And look, the agreement is is mostly symbolic. I mean, it's going after a real problem. These deceptive images that make political candidates look like they're doing something they didn't do. It also throws in, you know, information that's false about where to vote and how to vote lawfully. That's also included in the agreement. But look, uh, unlike the the letter on deep fakes that we just talked about, this agreement does not include a commitment to banning or removing the deep fakes. 
The whole point is to detect and label them mm-hmm. and then to try to take swift and proportionate responses when the content starts to spread. I think it's not a bad step. I mean, it's clearly public relations. The individual companies can do more if they want. It was watered down probably to get broader agreement. Uh, there's no commitment really to do anything about removing the, the stuff, but they can do it if they want. And of course, since it's voluntary, there's no real enforcement. I think it sends a good message that they're going to try to do something about this. The substance, as you pointed out, isn't terribly innovative or exciting, but it shows that they're going to try to do something, and that's a good thing. Yeah. This feels a little like the usual Microsoft government affairs style, which is make what appears to be some concessions and might even be some concessions on principle about whether you're going to do regulation and whether you're going to accept responsibility for some things, drag in some governments so that you've got an opportunity to engage with them on the topic, and then try to keep things at a level of generality that no one can ever really say you violated what you promised to do. Yeah, I think that that's a good summary. Okay, let's have fun with Lockbit. Uh, Michael, Lockbit is one of the most notorious ransomware as a service gangs, and they just got hammered. Yeah, it's great to great to see. And as you know, the FBI and about a dozen of their international partners had a had a little bit of fun with it. You know, like other ransomware attackers, Lockbit has used a darknet website to announce its attacks. They use a countdown timer to show victims how long they have to pay until the group starts to release the victim-sensitive data. The FBI was able to take over that darknet site and use Lockbit's own tactics against it by posting a countdown timer of their own before the FBI would publicly release the identity of Lockbit SUP, the, the group's spokesman of sorts, as well as by posting links to you know, free recovery tools and links to the indictments of Lockbit members on the, on the site. So, you know, look, the, the federal law enforcement officials may never be successful in actually prosecuting Lockbit members. A lot of these folks are in Russia. They're never likely to really leave Russia or to show up anywhere we could arrest them and, and extra them to the U.S. But it helps to damage their credibility by embarrassing them within their own circles. That's, the I think, the best victory you can hope for in this circumstance. Yeah, I credit the Brits with the, the humor. Uh, I suspect they're the source of uh, of some of the mockery. Jim, uh, how big a deal is this? Well, I think it's a big deal and another level, not a big deal. Stuart, we're uh, recording this on Monday, February 26th. The DOJ joint UK-US announcement was February 20th. This weekend, February 24th, a Saturday, uh, Lockbit was back online with a different server and sort of re-trolling the government for the government's trolling of, of Lockbit. So it's clearly this sort of, you know, never-ending, this sort of whack-a-mole. And by the way, Lockbit did get a lot of money, or at least it, Lockbit and its affiliates got a lot of money before they were disrupted in this way. Lockbit operates on, of course, the affiliate system, ransomware as a service. Lockbit produces the ransomware itself and provides some of the back-end support and then makes that available to uh, hackers who have access to systems that they can uh, take over and encrypt. The affiliates get the lion's share of the ransom. Sometimes up to 80% goes to the affiliates. But to me, I I hate the term whole of government, but this does represent, I think, where the significance of this is, because this isn't the first time the government has used these tools. This does represent a whole of toolbox approach. So you had some, uh, you hacked the hackers, 
And to the extent that any of that occurred inside the United States, it was done with a search warrant. You, to the extent it was done in the UK or other countries, it was done under some sort of local legal process that allows remote searches of computers. You had civil process, which was seizure of the domain name and the order to the domain name system, registries and registrars, to redirect the traffic that was going to the LockBit website and to redirect mm -hmm. it to the site controlled by the government. So you had the, the injunctive relief. You had some new indictments announced. You also had some arrests. Michael, it, it turns out that, you know, we think, oh, these guys, they're never going to get caught. They're never really going to be uh, extradited. Certainly the ones who stay in Russia for their, the rest of their entire lives, that's true. But with all of that went on with this operation last week, there was an arrest in Poland. There was an yeah. arrest in the Ukraine. Previously, another LockBit affiliate had been arrested in Canada. One of these guys, for whatever reason, came to the United States uh, a year or so ago and was arrested in Arizona. And then we also had sanctions. A couple of additional sanctions were issued. And, you know, each one of these things in and of themselves, sanctions, arrests of the affiliates, of whom there are hundreds, if not thousands, or certainly dozens, the seizures, the redirecting of the traffic. Oh, and the freezing of 200 cryptocurrency accounts. So in... Yep. Um, a number of cases now that the FBI has been able to, Colonial Pipeline being the most notorious, the government was able to actually seize the cryptocurrency and give it back to the victims. They did that with uh, Colonial. They did that with a, a, a number of hospitals who suffered ransomware attacks and, and the publishing of the keys. And yeah. Japan published a recovery tool. It's interesting that this was an operation that extended from the U.S. through Finland all the way to Japan. The Japanese National Police Agency was involved. So the victims can get their data back in some cases, and the government has hacked the hackers and gotten the keys in a number of cases. So I do see this, you know, cred to the Brits and to the FBI and to some of these other governments, including, like I say, Poland, Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is in the middle of a war fighting for its survival, and yet they're cooperating with the FBI, of course, against guys, a lot of whom are Russian and in Russia. But you've got this remarkable set of legal tools all being brought to play with attribution. Ten years ago, everybody was talking about, is attribution even possible? And now we have the capability to get literally into the computers of the bad guys and into their operational cycle. Pretty remarkable stuff, I think, and a, and a use of the legal tools. By the way, last funny point, <laughs> LockBit had a, this all started, at least the operation hinged on the fact that LockBit's website had a, a vulnerability, which the government exploited. And incredibly, like many of these ransomware gangs, they're quasi-run as a business and they have a PR operation. LockBit actually had a bug bounty program. And none of its affiliates or anybody else managed to find the vulnerability and report it through the bug bounty program. Instead, the governments found it and exploited it. And that's what set the whole ball rolling. Well, I, I hope for the future we have a uh, bug bounty program that says, we'll pay you whatever they're offering plus $1,000. <laughs> right. And even if it is a cat and mouse game, right, you still have to, to keep oh, up with it, right? So it's, it's good news for exactly, sure. Exactly, Michael. The maturation of the techniques here and the ability to use them is very impressive. All right. Uh, let's turn to the FTC, Jim. Uh, they went after Avast, which was a free cybersecurity software install. And it was free because it turned out, yes, indeed, you were the product. 
And they basically said Avast was misleading consumers. They didn't actually, it was, it was a little less than clear to me what Avast did that was actually misleading. My guess is that Avast had legal advice and they tried to walk a line and the FTC just obliterated it. Well, and, and I think the line that the lawyers at Avast tried to walk was the anonymization line. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Avast made a, a security product, a plug-in antivirus software, and basically they promised to protect your computer, and a lot of people used it, and it may have, in fact, worked. It got pretty good ratings, but it was also collecting the browsing data off of the browser because it was a browser plugin. And Avast check originated company, then went public in the UK and now owned by another company. They had an affiliate and the affiliate was basically a tracking, marketing, advertising part of that ecosystem. Now, Avast was saying, and I think this is where the case is significant because at some level, this is sort of piling on, that the whole practice here was revealed in 2019 and then was really stomped on in 2020. And I think stopped, the practice is an issue here. The company stopped them when they were outed publicly by a media. It was PC Magazine, yeah. I think, yeah. P PC Magazine and Motherboard outed them in 2020. And the Czech Data Protection Authority fined them last year. So there's a lot of piling on here, a little bit of piling on. But what I think is significant was that the lawyers and uh, Avast tried to say, oh, the data is anonymized. Right. But it could be re-identified. And in fact, some of their contracts, as is appropriate, tried to say it should not, you, our customer of the data, shall not re-identify it, but it was pretty easily to, to re-identify and the users or purchasers of the data could re-identify it with their own identified data or could link it to the data they had. And so I think what the FTC was saying in this case was we're going to scrutinize claims that, oh, we're only selling anonymized or aggregated data. So that's where I think a lot of the, the data market may be going or already mm -hmm. is in many cases. And the FTC is saying, well, we're going to actually look more carefully at those claims. And we're going to look at the way that one piece of anonymous data can be linked to another piece of data and recompiled into a identified profile. But isn't it always the case? I mean, you, you, usually two or three pieces of data will let you do that if you know exactly, where... Exactly. But that's the point, Stuart. I think a lot of people, I mean, you look at a lot of terms of service and they will say, we sell only de-identified data or we sell only anonymized or aggregated data. And a lot of the players in the ecosystem have used that as their legal justification that the laws regulate PII, personally identifiable or identified data. And now, increasingly, the regulators, not only FTC, but I would say California State, are looking at issues of re-identification. Everybody knows it's easy. Supposedly, the contract said you couldn't do it. The FTC is saying, we're going to look behind those contracts to what's actually going on. Yeah. And maybe there isn't much business value in actually identifying the people. 
right? As long as you know what they buy, you don't care well, who they level, are. Well, that's right. But, you know, part of the remedy here, of course, was a remedy that the FTC has become increasingly enamored of and using is disgorge or destroy, get rid of all the data that you collected during this period and delete any models, any products or algorithms derived from that data. Mm. That's a serious penalty because five years of work can go down the drain. And that's close to existential for some companies. Which may explain why it took three years for the FTC to persuade these guys to accept a... Um... Maybe. So Avast probably moved on. Avast has, has, has moved on. And right. I, I don't know how, how successful they are or not, but you're right. Then this becomes a signal to others, which is the way the FTC yeah. uses these cases. Okay. Mark, we haven't had a lot of EU uh, news on this program, but there is a new investigation of TikTok over possible online content breaches, I guess, mostly around protecting children and maybe transparency of advertising. Yeah, that's it. I mean, the the underlying law is the Digital Services Act, which is now in force, and it requires risk assessments and mitigation for the largest social media companies. The, the commission has already got one investigation going under this law. They went after Twitter or X last year. Apparently, it was generated by those horrifying posts that were posted following the Hamas's attack on Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, Musk said to the EU industry chief, Thierry Breton, Hey, why are you going after us? The other guys are worse. And so now the commission... (laughs) Okay. Well, that worked, apparently. (laughs) The commission opened the case against TikTok, but it's different, as you point out. Breton said that they're focusing on kids, the addictive design, screen time limits, rabbit hole effects, age verification, even the privacy settings. So that, that that's really the attempt to focus on them. And we don't know much about the timetable for wrapping up the investigation. It, they got to take it seriously. This could result in fines of 6% of global turnover. It's, it's worth noting that the commission only has 75 or so officials working on these new rules, and they've got 22 social networks that they've got to supervise. So that's, what, three to each per each social network? <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they have to pick their battles. And maybe these two are the most important ones, but they can't take on very many more with that kind of staffing. Well, and I noticed that the European authorities who are getting ready to inaugurate a new presidency, I guess, uh, yeah. there was a general announcement from, uh, I guess it was probably the council, saying, hey, you know what you should do for the next five years? How about no new regulation of technology? We think you might have bitten off more than you can shoot. <laughs> Unless they're going to hire up. I mean, you know, the grids have the same kind of law. And they've already hired 300 people to implement it. And the commission is just way behind on the level of enforcement that they could possibly undertake. Well, that's, but it's easier for them because they can choose who to go after based on who bought them lunch last week. Oh, there's always that, isn't there? (laughs) So why don't we also jump into the um, Florida law on uh, social media for kids and maybe the Kids Online Safety Act, I guess it is, COSA, Yeah, because uh, yeah. it's all the same problem that the governments are trying to get at. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the new Florida law got passed last week. It's aimed to prevent social media companies from signing up people under 16. So they've got to do age verification for everybody. If you can't prove you're under 16, then they cut you off and they have to terminate accounts You know, if they find out that it's underage. 
it applies to all the big companies, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube. I got an interesting little sidebar. It says that the platforms can't show harmful material to minors, including patently offensive sexual conduct. Has anybody heard of the lawsuit Reno versus uh, SVU? I mean, we've been down this road before. Although I I think the point in Reno was you can't say you can't show it on the Internet generally because kids are there. This is an effort to say you ought to know whether you're dealing with a kid and then decide what you can show the kid. Yeah. And so we'll see if I mean, we don't even know if if Ron DeSantis, governor, there will be signing it. Yeah, he was was sounding like I think these guys are going to get it right soon, but maybe not now. Yeah. And the problem, of course, is that it seems to take away some parental rights. You know, so other state laws say parents have the right to keep their kids off and the social media companies have to get their approval before they let the kids on. This is much farther than that. It's a ban. And he may be thinking that may not be as popular as some people might uh, might mm-hmm. think. But I mean, to be to be fair, this is a very popular kind of issue. I mean, you talk to the state AGs who are bringing that case against Meta which said that they're purposely designing their system to addict kids. And they say, yeah, we've talked to parents all over the country, and they say we have three concerns, guns, fentanyl, and social media. So this is really a popular issue. And I think the popularity is getting to the Senate as well, where there's a new version of COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act. The the first one was opposed by a lot of human rights and free speech groups in addition to the tech industry. And then concern was that the state enforcers go, could go after LGBT users. Oh, yeah. Um, they could even say, you know, all that history of racism you see on the, the social media platforms, that's harmful to white children. So they were worried about that. And so the updated version tries to head off that concern by saying, state AGs, you don't have an enforcement role. It's just the FTC that's going to be doing this. And Senator Blumenthal, who's the lead sponsor, said there are a large number of LGBT groups that are now in support of the legislation, including GLAAD and the Human Rights Campaign. I mean, the, the, the legislation does list the specific harms that they're seeking to avoid. So there's no open-ended definition of harm. So that problem seems to be resolved. And the idea that you could block searches for information about a gay or lesbian or trans issues seem to be taken care of. Because it it says if you actually affirmatively search for certain information, the social media companies can't block that search. So we'll see what happens. I mean, some some of the tech companies have endorsed it. Snap has endorsed it. X has endorsed it. For some reason, Nintendo, the, the gaming giant, has endorsed it. But there's no bill in the House. And so it's not clear that there's a, a way towards final passage with this, even if it gets through the Senate. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is that it's not clear... I guess, what does the Freedom Caucus think about stuff like this? And obviously the House is bitterly divided over most things. But my assumption is that unless there's some part of both the Republican and Democratic base that supports this with enthusiasm, it's just going to languish in the House. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it is enormously popular at the grassroots level. So I'm a little surprised that the House is resistant in this way. They seem to want to focus more on things like general purpose privacy legislation as opposed to kid-specific stuff. But that doesn't 
strike me as being a politically salient consideration. It got them so far. It got them through a committee and no further. So I'm skeptical about that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And I also think this is a very interesting tactic to say about, you know, most of the laws that have passed recently have had FTC plus AG right. enforcement. And now industry, which always hated that because it multiplied the number of enforcers by 50, industry has found a way to try to put a stick in the spoke of that kind of measure. Yeah, it's a measure of the the extent to which this is a polarized issue to some degree, even though doing something about kids' online safety is popular, exactly what you do is not as popular as people might believe. This is unlike the United Kingdom, where they pass these kinds of age-appropriate laws without a blink, and everyone's comfortable with them, and they're being enforced by a neutral regulator. But here, the idea of harm to kids is a politically controversial thing, even though everyone knows what they're getting at and what they're trying to, to resolve. It's not as easy to do it here in our current climate as it is in other jurisdictions. So here's a story that I found interesting, and it's got tech in it because it's about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And I hadn't really followed it, but apparently all of those embarrassing outtakes that got Kanye uh, isolated and, and then Carlson, Tucker Carlson, fired were the result of some hacking, or at least the Justice Department thinks that hacking occurred and they've now decided to prosecute somebody for going in, hacking those outtakes into the public domain. That's right, Stuart. At the time that those uh, embarrassing video clips showed up, a lot of people speculated that Fox had actually leaked the footage itself to right. try to tarnish Tucker's reputation. Turns out there might be a different culprit, a guy named Timothy Burke, who was a Tampa area, he called himself a, a journalist because he used to work for Deadspin and the Daily Beast. It seems to be a bit, a bit of a gadfly. Although I, I also noticed he's married to a city councilwoman in Tampa, so he's not like an obscure individual. Last year, federal agents executed a search warrant on his house and seized a bunch of his devices. And now with the indictment, we know that he and an unidentified co-conspirator allegedly, I should say, found compromised username and passwords online and used them to access a streaming service that had those Fox News videos stored on it and downloaded the videos from those URLs and then leaked them to Media Matters and other press outlets. It appears for his part that Burke contends that he didn't rely on compromised credentials and that the, the videos were available to anyone who had the right URL, even though the URL was not publicly disseminated. What the truth is there, I guess we'll, we'll find out as this case proceeds, but it's certainly an interesting fact pattern that uh, a little more to the story than people initially thought. Yeah. I, and, and that's an argument that has worked for some truly loathsome people. <laughs> I forget that there was a guy who uh, early on guessed that AT&T was just incrementing the user IDs by one and downloaded all of the uh, user IDs and passwords, I think, for AT&T customers. And he was some kind of neo-Nazi, if I remember right. So we may actually see some law made here. One of his lawyers is Mark Rash, who might even have been on the podcast. He certainly could have been. He's, he's been doing cyber law longer than I have. So you can be reasonably sure he will he will have a pretty good idea how to pre how to present the defense. Yeah, yeah, that looks like a, again a, a real case of real lawyers. So could be uh, fun fun to watch if you're uh, a CIFA nerd. Yeah. Okay. This this one I was actually listening to the 
Texas and Florida oral argument before we got on the air today. Uh, this is the net choice cases over the laws in Florida and Texas that essentially impose common carrier obligations on social media. Mark, we're going to end up talking about this a lot next week, but can you give us a preview of the kinds of issues that people should be looking for as they hopefully listen to the argument over the next week or so? I'll just highlight the things that seem interesting to me. The Florida statute says you got to carry political candidates and journalistic organizations. Texas says you got to have non-discrimination. You can't be biased based on political point of view. They both want transparency and explanation of content moderation decisions. The issues are whether the law's content moderation restrictions and the individualized explanations requirement pass First Amendment review. That's what the court is hearing arguments about. And the key question for me is whether the court strikes down the content restrictions, which I think they will, in ways that would rule out other legislation in this area. And in that connection, the most interesting amicus brief I saw was one from law professors and history scholars. It included Larry Lessig and Zephyr Teachout and Tim Wu, and it was done in conjunction with the American Economics Liberties Project. And they were in support of the Texas law. Oh, and they really? argued that the Constitution does not bar government from imposing neutral, non-discrimination rules on business, even if these businesses are communications firms that are providing a platform used by third parties for public discourse. The key point is a quotation here. They are, these social media firms, are their own beast, but they are far closer to a shopping center or a railroad than to the Manchester Union leader. And this, to my mind, suggests something I didn't think was possible, which is a break in the almost universal lockstep of progressive groups with social media companies on these First Amendment issues. Apparently, their real concern is with child online safety laws, the nation's AI regulation, and anti-monopoly statutes. They're worried that a decision in this case might outlaw those other measures. Well, I think the left is so addicted to injections of funds from Silicon Valley that it's hard to break with them. But this actually makes perfect sense to me. This is progressive doctrine. I think Louis Brandeis would be so proud of Tim Wu and Larry Lessig and Zephyr Teachout for taking this position. This is classic progressive antitrust thinking. Yeah, they're, they're channeling Louis Brandeis. That's absolutely right. And, you know, they accept some of the implications of this, which is a little startling. They say if the Texas law gets upheld, then users who violate basic norms of decency will be permitted to remain on social media platforms. Access means access to society's most loathed voices. I think they actually don't like the law for that reason. Right. They still think it passes constitutional muster. In fact, they don't even think it merits heightened First Amendment review. So, by the way, other, other legal scholars don't agree with them on that point. They think that non-discrimination rules generally do allow reasonable discrimination, like taverns can exclude drunk customers and stuff like that. Right. But it's not at all clear that the Texas statute does that. Well, it, I think you could probably make it do that pretty easily. I'm interested, having been accused of being a neocon, I think it's fair to say that these guys are neo-progs. They are neo-progressives 100 years too late. 
Yeah, as I say, I think they're channeling Louis Brandeis and, and he'd be cheering them on from his grave. Yeah. All right. So the oral argument is really interesting. I only heard Paul Clement, who, of course, is a frustratingly adept. Uh, he's on the other side, of course, because that's where the money is. And I heard pieces of the argument. It sounded to me as though you're right that the court, the swing justices on this issue, Kavanaugh and the like, maybe even Barrett, are inclined to say, we think that the decision about what you're going to allow on your platform is probably a First Amendment infected decision, and we're not going to allow a lot of second guessing there. But what about people like Venbo and Airbnb, who basically just want to say, you have bad views and we're not going to let you do business on our platform. And they were struggling with that. So struggling to find some areas where they could uphold the law. Justice Jackson, who continues to surprise me from time to time, sounded deeply unpersuaded by the argument that applying discrimination rules would be a violation of the First Amendment, even if you applied them to discrimination based on viewpoint. So there's going to be a, a span of views here. I'm sure Alito and Thomas will be on the side of the laws to a great degree, but it's not going to be fully clear from the argument who's going to win. And it probably sounds like something of a split decision. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got what Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, you know, prepared to uphold at least a Texas law. And that, that's three. I don't know if they can get another two. Yeah, that would be my guess. And I'm not even sure about Gorsuch, who really reserves his ire for government regulation less than for the regulation of big companies. So we'll see. All right. So the Coast Guard, and this is our last topic before I just do a few quick hits. The Coast Guard, Jim, got authority... And it was the weirdest executive order I've ever read. It basically just went through and amended the Code of Federal Regulations as though that's kind of what executive orders do. I, I was puzzled. So last week, the president issued an executive order on the safeguarding of vessels, harbors, ports, and waterfront facilities. And as you say, it said, I, the president, amend these regulations, which is very strange, although yeah. If you go back to the 1917 statute, the 1917 statute says the president shall issue regulations. Ah, okay. Um, and in fact, the executive order was not the most important thing, although since it was an executive order, everybody paid attention to it. Here's the key fact. Don't think ships or vessels. Don't think docks or wharves. Think about the cranes. Mm which are pretty much run by, uh, they're built in China and they're run on Chinese software, 80, right? So everything that comes off of or goes onto a ship, including, by the way, when you think of our military deployment, most of our the time our military deploys overseas, it's on ships leaving from stateside ports. 80% of those cranes have been made in China. And like everything else, those cranes were by design, designed to be controlled serviced and programmed remotely. And presumably to be able to tell everything that's in every container they pick up, because that's what you would want. Exactly. Part of the informatization of maritime transport, just like the digitalization of everything else, has been all information driven, both information as well as operational technology. So here we are, 90% of the stuff that comes into or goes out of the country is on ships. 
80% of those cranes are built in China. So there are actually four things that the administration announced last week. The executive order, which adds words like data information network program system to all of these existing regs, which talk about controlling waterfront facilities. Secondly, the Coast Guard issued a maritime security directive, similar in a way to the pipeline directive, the airports directive, et cetera, these directives that were issued post-colonial. Third, the Coast Guard proposed a very lengthy rule and a rulemaking. Remember what tripped up the Environmental Protection Agency on its effort to address the cybersecurity of water systems was they did it by an interpretation, not by rulemaking, and it got immediately enjoined. And then a fourth, the administration announced a joint deal with a Japanese company to start building cranes in the United that's States. Right. All right. Well, that's good news. <laughs> so I think, again, this is part of the overall effort by the administration to go sector by sector using existing authorities and addressing this remarkable vulnerabilities that we obviously know we have in a lot of critical infrastructures. And of course, it ties into things like Volt Typhoon and other evidence of real ongoing Chinese and or Russian intrusion into the operating technology of critical infrastructure. All right. Okay, a few quick hits. First, the sad news. Rob Joyce is leaving the National Security Agency after almost 35 years. The NSA's loss, I hope, will be the Cyber Law Podcast gain because, Rob, anytime you want to come on and participate in our panel, uh, you have a standing invitation. So come on down. There is a, we could have covered this in the main discussion. It's just that it was hard to find really interesting stuff in it than I thought. China's ecosystem of contractors who provide support to uh, cyber espionage has been breached with the leak of a whole bunch of internal documents by one of the I suspect minor contractors who support cyber espionage. And there was a lot of kind of mildly interesting stuff in the trove of documents that was released. Nothing that really changed anybody's mind about the world or about China or about cyber espionage. But, you know, it confirmed pretty much for most people that China is actually running pwn to own contests and then taking the malware used by the, the winners and immediately weaponizing it and turning it against folks in the West. That's nice to know. We sort of suspected that was the truth, but now we've got a lot more evidence of that. And maybe there's more evidence here that the State Department will use in talking to particular countries. But if you follow that stuff closely, you should definitely dig it out, and especially if you read Chinese. The story I could not look away from was a story by Charlotte Cowles entitled uh, How I Fell for an Amazon Scam Call and Handed Over $50,000, which is exactly what she did. She's the financial columnist, and she got scammed in a both profoundly embarrassing and engaging way that makes you think, Ken, I wonder if I could be scammed that way. You like to think you couldn't, but my bet is you can be. She ended up taking all of her ready money out of the bank, putting it in cash, putting the cash in a shoebox and going down to the street and sticking it through the window of a car that pulled up. She didn't even see the person who got it. And because she had been persuaded that she was the victim of a scam and the people on the phone with her were helping her save her money. And it's compelling reading because it'll give you 
hopefully a little more warning if somebody tries to pull it on you. And then last, there's a good story out about LLM agents and uh, their ability to autonomously hack websites. So if you take large language models, you turn them into autonomous agents, you send them out to attack websites, turns out they're pretty good at it. They can bring their own SQL and injections and other tools and get themselves in. You're talking about GPT-4 and higher, which is pretty much the top of the line right now, but it suggests that we are in for a really serious decade of massive at scale attacks on everybody. Because once you've written one of these things, you can unleash it on the world and see what comes back. So that's our show. The last thing I wanted to do was to remind you that last week, when it turned out that I agreed with EFF on the unwisdom of having the UN write a cyber crime treaty for the world, I said that if they want to come sponsor our show, they are free to do so. It turns out we have at least one supporter in common who called them up and said, you ought to do that. And so without further ado, here is Cindy Cohn, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Stuart, I'm just delighted that we agree that the UN Cybercrime Treaty risks making all of us less safe, in part by threatening the very people who help us test the security of our devices and our networks. I also wanted to let your audience know about EFF's own podcast called How to Fix the Internet where we talk with some of the leading minds in law and technology about how to create a better digital world. It's available everywhere podcasts are and also at EFF.org slash podcasts. And is it as commercial free as the Cyberlaw podcast is? It's absolutely commercial free. We have lovely sponsors in the Sloan Foundation who have supported it. And, you know, I don't think we can build a better digital world unless we can envision it. And right now people are kind of mired in all the problems. So the idea behind the podcast is to really take some time to think about what the world looks like if we get it right. All right. Well, that's Cindy Cohn, the head of the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation and someone with whom I have been almost entirely disagreeing for 30 years, <laughs> but occasionally agreeing as indeed we agree on the uh, UN Cybercrime Treaty. I mean, I think when EFF and Stuart agree, like the world ought to listen, right? That's a rare moment. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Jim, Michael, and Mark for joining us. For our listeners, if you want to send us mail, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. For our supporter who also supports EFF, if you want to send us half what you send to EFF, we'd be happy to take the support or leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, That would be definitely our second choice. This has been episode 493 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. I mean, I think when EFF and Stuart agree, like the world ought to listen, right? That's a rare moment. <laughs>